Welcome to the Afghanistan Project Podcast. I'm Beth Bailey here with my co-host, Michael Cook. Today, I'm excited to introduce you guys to a scholar who has for decades been at the forefront of efforts to understand the Taliban as an organization, uh, as well as other terror groups. Bill Roggio is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and he edits the Foundation's Long War Journal, which has done some of the most thorough open source reporting on the global war on terror's various fields of conflict throughout Southeast Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. Bill is also a veteran of the U.S. Army and the New Jersey National Guard, and he spent time embedded with U.S. and Iraqi forces in Iraq during 2008 and with the Canadian Army in Afghanistan in 2006. Bill, Michael, and I are so honored to have you with us so we can deepen our understanding of what's going on with the Taliban at this point in time. Beth, Michael, it's a pleasure to join you, and thank you for that kind introduction. I, it's <laughs> really, I'm, I've been looking forward to this conversation all week. Thanks for having me. <laughs> We're excited to have you. I think just to start, you know, this is such a big topic, the Taliban. Um, I'd like to go back to all these scholars who told us at the beginning of the Taliban's takeover that this was a Taliban 2.0 and that these were somehow different Taliban than we encountered during our 20 years of conflict and then in their previous 1996 to 2001 iteration. What was your reaction to those kinds of comments when they started coming out? Meet the, tal the new Taliban, same as the old Taliban. The reality is, you know, We've been in search for a moderate Taliban, a, a pragmatic Taliban, a Taliban that we could deal with for, I would say, a decade and a half. And it really took steam at the end of the Bush administration, but particularly during the Obama administration. They negotiated with the Taliban. And I will say this to President Obama's credit, he cut it off. I think he realized that they were unwilling to compromise um, I, mean, I think it was a mistake to open the door, but he did understand that this would be on his, the, the failure of Afghanistan would be on his hands and it would be a part of his legacy and that he realized he wasn't going to get what the Taliban wanted. President Trump obviously went in, did that terrible deal. He looked for, you know, the, the, looked for the moderate Taliban's Almay Khalizade, you know, pretty much convinced them that he had, they had it. This was all a lie. The Taliban were very effective in communicating with scholars, with reporters, um, with government officials, and assuring them that they could be, they could work with us, that uh, that there was middle ground to be met. And they lied about it all the time. And you know how I knew this? It was really simple. I read the Taliban's propaganda, and I didn't read it in Pashtu or Dari or uh, Urdu or Arabic. They put it out in four languages. By the way, we never put anything out in four, five languages, but they also put it out in English. I do read English. I read Voice of Jihad voraciously. I read every article every day. They were very, very clear to their followers. And a lot of this propaganda, again, it's released in English, was directed at the West. They were telling us I remember, um, I want to say this was in 2016, the Taliban released a statement saying something to the effect, you know, we're not going to sacrifice decades of fighting and blood for a silly ministerial post. They were very clear about that. And it wasn't just what they said. If you watch their actions matched their words, they never gave in on any of the conditions of negotiations. They, you know, women's rights, uh, girls' school, uh, doing something against uh, Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups. They lied through their teeth on that one. 
negotiating directly with the Afghan government, going in partnership with the Afghan government, joining in with an Afghan constitution. That's all the things that we want. You know what we got in that deal, that Doha agreement that happened under the Trump administration? We got the Taliban saying they won't allow Afghanistan be, to be used by terrorist groups to attack other countries. They didn't say those groups weren't welcome in Afghanistan. That was it. That was really the only concession that the Taliban gave. But they were lying about it because what the Taliban claimed was all the uh, all the time was the Taliban claimed, well, Al-Qaeda left after 9-11. They said this in English numerous times. Their, their press secretaries, whatever you want to call it, their spokesmen would say this. I actually called one out publicly in a, in a forum and, and he demurred. Um, you know, they, they lied to us from the beginning. People sought the moderate Taliban. I, I always said, name me a moderate Taliban. And they would say, well, Mullah Baradar. There's a great article in the New York Times about the ne negotiations. Baradar was in a hotel in, um, in Doha and he had to close his curtains because he couldn't bear to look out the window and see women at the pool. Um, he had to have the hallways cleared in front of him. Um, women weren't allowed negotiation room, things like that. You know, if that's a moderate Taliban, I'd like to show you, you to show me an extreme one. It's interesting that you mentioned the lying because that's that's what I've always seen with them is if if their mouths are moving, what's coming out it, is not true. And why it do you depends think it is, on what it was like. They yeah. were actually telling the truth about it, you know, in certain things. But when it came to what we wanted, that's when they lied through their teeth. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to yeah. interrupt you. Though. Oh, I no. I, I think that's a really good distinction. Um, it's since they've come to power, they've said things like, well, we're going to ban opium. Well, last year, the opium during the opium ban, it was the most profitable opium crop in, I, I think it was several, many years. Yep. You know, all these things that they say that they, and they say, keep saying things like, oh, yeah, well, we, we will consider reopening schools in Southern Afghanistan. And they say things without ever making, they're not real there. It's all this, you know, nonsense to continue to appease, I think. And how do you think we're getting, are we getting duped by their, their words now? Or is that just, you know, there are people who are talking about let's, let's negotiate with the Taliban right now. Let's engage yeah. with them. Let's continue, you know, that they think that that will be the path to maybe, bringing women back into society or other kinds of things that clearly are are not acceptable in Afghanistan right now. Do you think that that's something that is ever going to work with the Taliban? Oh, it'll never work. The Taliban, look, we got, you know, everyone's talked about how the Taliban are, you know, straw between their sandals and their toes, um, you know, mountain pashtuns. Well, guess what? We got out negotiated by them. We got out you know, diplomatic by them at every single turn because we wanted something that wasn't achievable. We wanted the Taliban to be something that it wasn't. And the Taliban, because it has religious motivation, is uh, was never going to give it. Yeah, sure, the Taliban will allow things like opium to happen because that's what keeps its powerful leaders in business. The, uh, the United Nations sanctions and monitoring team report that just came out talks about this issue, about the narcotics. And it explains that, um, you know, guys like Sarajud Nakani, the son of Jalalud Nakani, one of the, you know, key founders of the Taliban who was closely tied to Al-Qaeda. Um, Sarajud is a deputy emir, of the, one of two deputy emirs of the Taliban, as well as their interior minister, arguably the most powerful Taliban commander um, and leader. He's manufacturing meth in East, Eastern Afghanistan. This is all approved 
because the Taliban emir, who's very religious, as a surgeon, but they know they got to make money. And what, yet we still want to reach out to groups. Afghanistan is a narco state. It's a narco terrorist state. And, we, and, and what you're getting from arguments from people like Zalmay Khalizade, again, the architect of the Doha deal, or Douglas London, a former counterterrorism leader, or um, uh, the former, one of the uh, former Afghan ambassadors saying, well, the Taliban, it's the reality. We have to, we have to negotiate with them. We have to recognize them. No, we don't. We don't have to negotiate with them. We tried that. How did that work out? It led to the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. What else are we going to give them this time? The U.S. has released billions of dollars in funds to the Taliban, and the U.S. government will not cooperate with the Special Investigator General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. By the way, if every government agency run like SIGAR did, I'd actually really like my government. They, they do their job. They... Um, they, you know, they, you get your bang for your buck from them. And it's a congressional mandate that they that the State Department, the Defense Department, that USA report to them and provide and tell them where money is going in Afghanistan. And the administration is refusing to turn over this information. Billions of dollars are heading into Taliban bank accounts, into a terrorist uh, narco state that has Al Qaeda leaders embedded within government positions. That's also in the latest sanctions and monitoring team report. And yet people think we could negotiate in good faith with the Taliban or that the Taliban will negotiate in good faith with us. Yep. Um, I've seen this movie. It ended in <laughs> August 2021 and it ended badly. I don't want to see the sequel. Yeah. So, Bill, when it comes to, you know, um, talking with the Taliban um, about humanitarian aid, how, you know, how do you what's the path forward there? This is a very difficult argument for me to make because. I care about the Afghan people and I recognize that they're in need, but aid like money is fungible and every dollar in aid that you provide to Afghanistan, it's going through the Taliban. They're skimming off of it. It's money they don't have to take out of their coffers to provide for their people. So you're propping up the Taliban government and the Taliban is going to get credit for that aid anyway because they'll scrub anything that makes it look like it's Western. So I think, I think skimming might even be a generous term there. As well. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, if, you know, if like 20, 30% is a skim, um, if not more, I, I, it's, and by the way, I made this point at a conference that was, I was, I think I was one of the only American speakers. I was, as a matter of fact, I was the only American speaker there in front of a whole panel of Afghans and a group of Afghans. And, and I, I made the same argument I just made here that we just shouldn't do it. And to a man, they agreed with me. I got emails. I was expecting, expecting to get the most hate, but these are people, these are people who understand what's left behind. And they understand that if we support the Afghan, the Taliban in any way, by supporting the Afghan people that we're only propping up the Taliban regime, the Taliban, while it's begging for aid, wants to increase the size of its military and security forces by 50%. I don't think that's a good investment. It's a really bad idea. We, we need to isolate Afghanistan. And it, again, it pain, you know, there's people in need, but you know, Mer you know, you'll see reports, you know, hundreds of billions, a trillion, two trillion, whatever that number is. And all of the, the, tens of billions in weapons systems and munitions and bait and, and material that we left behind in Afghanistan. 
I think we've dumped enough money into Afghanistan to put the Taliban in control. I think it's time to turn off that spigot. If China wants to do this, if Pakistan wants to, Pakistan and Iran played the biggest, biggest role in getting the Taliban victory. The, the, Iran's role is much lesser known. I testified in a case uh, in federal court and we won where service members uh, were killed or wounded or their family members sued Iran. Um, and we made the case and, and the, the judge sided with us. The, the Iran support for the Taliban was significant. Let Iran fund the Taliban, let Pakistan fund the Taliban. It's their monster, it's their neighbor, let them live with it. Sure. There, so the, the Taliban's military right now, you know, they had their shadow governance system, their military commander system before we left the country. How easy was it for them to kind of turn into a full on governing slash military force when they did take over the country? Was that a pretty solid, seamless shift? It was. Um, the Taliban had a shadow, as you noted, a shallow, shadow governance both a shadow, uh, both a government as well as a military organization for nearly two decades. Um, it was effective. Uh, we saw it in action in air in districts that they took control of. We saw how they governed. We saw how they, they, how they policed areas that were under their control. And this structure, I would say was almost seamless. There was some sorting out the uh, ministry positions, interior and defense and, and intelligence, but these were quickly sorted out uh, by the Taliban. The Taliban had district level military organization. They had provincial, they had re and regional level uh, uh, organization. And when it came time to switch, when it came time to switch, uh, flip the switch, um, the Taliban were, you know, they were prepared and. Uh, I wasn't actually wasn't very surprised by it. Um, the Taliban's organization was something that impressed me. One of the things I did um, and was mocked for was documenting the Taliban training of its military. It would almost constantly put out videotapes of them conducting, you know, various levels of training. And, you know, even people in the military would laugh at me for this um, because it was rudimentary, but they weren't training to beat us, the U.S. We they were. You know what the funny thing is about uh, what happened in Afghanistan? The Taliban fought the varsity in order to prepare to fight the freshmen or the middle school, which was the Afghan military. Mm. It was very effective. Those That training that they did, sure, it wasn't up to par for our special forces or our infantry um, units, but it was Afghan good enough, and that's why the Taliban's in control. Absolutely. What about the way that so we just saw them push a bunch of captured ANDSF vehicles over to the Iranian border? Did you notice anything about the way that they did that and maybe their preparedness as a military from that particular event? There's a lot of debate about, you know, the quality or the, the, the state of the vehicles. Some of these vehicles, particularly Humvees and light armored vehicles were driven over. Some of the heavier armor, like the, the MRAPs, the mine resistance ambush ve uh, protection vehicles, some of them were hauled, but this is not uncommon. They also brought some old uh, Soviet tanks and, and also US armor, uh, M113 armored personnel carriers, as well as some light armored vehicles. Some of those were put on flatbeds, but this is how the US military does it. I think the Taliban has done 
a decent job in taking what was in Afghanistan and maintaining them. But they had years of doing this. The Taliban would seize uh, Afghan security forces, Humvees and armored vehicles and trucks, and they would keep these things on the road. Um, I think they very likely had a very um, had a bit of support from our very good frenemy Pakistan, which very likely pri- provided support um, to help them keep up the logistics. But the Taliban are very resourceful in keeping these vehicles on the road. So, you know, there's a debate how many I've seen upwards of 2000 vehicles removed to the border. I suspect, you know, that's what I would always call Afghan math. Divide that by five or 10 and you'll probably get the real number. Um, but the fact that they're able to move, you know, hundreds, if not a thousand vehicles to the Af- to the Afghan-Iranian border, um, you know, I, I think that, no, if they actually went toe-to-toe with the Iranians, how do I think that would go? The Iranians certainly would outmatch them militarily. Um, but that's not the point. That was a show of force there, and it was an effective one. And, you know, it made, made the news and has us talking about it. But it's something that we should keep in mind. What we left behind in Afghanistan um this is going to you know i don't think any i don't think the government really considered the possibility of leaving the taliban armor and and light light armored vehicles and uh, armored personnel carriers and, and all of this and how this would benefit the taliban um in consolidating control of their country and defeating the national resistance front the only um at, at least at the time last year viable opposition to the Taliban. They did it pretty quickly and pretty effectively. Um, you know, the you know, everyone talked about the lion of Panjshir, the sun, and you know, how Panjshir is a fortress. You know what? The Taliban committed resources for that and put that down. We're not hearing about Panjshir this year in the National Resistance Front. You know, Bill, speaking of the the NRF, I'm I'm curious what what your um thoughts are on the level of interest of Taliban attacks on U.S. soil because I actually spent um, a little bit of time with the NRF over in Austria a couple months ago, and in an interview they were saying that they think that the Taliban will be capable of tax attacks on the U.S. soil within three to five years. Do you think that's accurate, or do you think they have any interest in that? I think the NRF, and I'm I'm a you know I'm supportive of their efforts to to oppose the Taliban. The Taliban itself aren't interested in conducting an attack on U.S. soil. It's who the Taliban supports. That's the real issue here. It's Al-Qaeda. It's the move, movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. It's the Islamic Jihad, Usman, Jihad Union, the Islamic movement in Uzbekistan, all these groups that have plotted in the West that now have safe haven in Afghanistan. And that the latest United Nations sanctions and monitoring team report notes that the Taliban has safe haven. I'm sorry, Al-Qaeda has the safe haven as well as all these terrorist groups. So that's the real threat. The, uh, look, the, the NRF and other groups, uh, Afghanistan Freedom Front and um, other groups, they're in fundraising mode right now. So I don't blame them for saying things like that. They're looking for support. Um, I would caution them to keep your claims reasonable. Um, the Taliban, well, I, don't, I think they'd be happy to see a terrorist attack on U.S. soil. Um, they're not going to risk the ire of the international community. They just took control. They're still consolidating their control in Afghanistan. They have, uh, you know, some problems to deal with. Like, oh, it's all manageable at the moment. Um, the last thing they want to do is to potentially get the U.S. to intervene in Afghanistan one way or another.
Yeah. And as far as, you know, peace with the Taliban and NRF, do you think the Taliban has any interest there? Because when I when I interviewed Commander Massoud, he said he's offered peace multiple times, you know, obviously on on his terms, um, but the Taliban has refused it. Do you think they're interested in that or they just want to fight it out with them? The Taliban is only in, the only piece the Taliban is interested in is the peace of the Taliban. And the, we witnessed the peace of the Taliban in August 2021. And it's peace on the Taliban's term. The only peace the Taliban would accept from the NRF or any other group is unconditional surrender. The Taliban, again, you know, they've said it. They, they didn't go all this way. They didn't sacrifice the lives of their fathers and sons and brothers um and you know in order to share power with people that they consider to be apostates so the the tal the taliban are only interested interested in peace on their terms i think it's interesting too so we everybody talks about the taliban's military all these you know their their anger towards people who worked with our military but another big aspect of the taliban's control system and something that drew a lot of their ire was the the judicial system that was in place in Afghanistan under Jairoa. And they've now, I mean, that's gone. It's now Taliban justice. That's what they want to see. And I wonder how much do you think that has to play in the Taliban not wanting another force in power because then they wouldn't be able to enact justice their way and impose, you know, their understanding of Islamic law. It's interesting you mentioned that, that United Nations report that I keep mentioning, it talks a little bit about this, how the Taliban are saying that the only people that could practice law are those approved by the Taliban judiciary. So there's about 2,500 lawyers and you know former judges and whatnot in Afghanistan who are, won't be approved by the Taliban. They work for the government or in private sector. And so, yeah, the Taliban, they want to dominate every realm of Afghan society militarily, social, judicial, um, economic, uh, you know, development. Uh, that's the Taliban view. It all stems from their Amir al-Munamin or the leader of the faithful. That's Mulahabiyatullah Akhamzada. He is the chief and um, those who he appoints below him, it, everything comes from down on high. And that's what, yeah, the Taliban, it's why they won't have peace terms with groups like the NRF or the only terms that they'll accept. The only, there, there is no compromise with the Taliban. Mm-hmm. This was so obvious throughout the entirety of the U.S. presence in Afghanistan. And yet the big lie that diplomats and even generals, General Miller and General Nicholson and uh, General Dunford, they, the, they told themselves that there was room to go negotiate with the Taliban and the Taliban merely used negotiations to get us to leave. It was, I would say it was clever, but it was so obvious with what was happening that, um, you know, it was only clever, I guess, because they fooled those easily fooled. Um, yeah, but the Taliban, they, they, want, they need to control the judiciary. That's probably one of the biggest areas, the judicial and religious are the two things they really care about. And then to mention the judiciary, one of the things that made that gave the Taliban legitimacy and delegitimized the Afghan government was its ability to solve disputes with its Sharia courts in areas that it controlled. Because one of the big problems with a country like Afghanistan that's been at war for decades was land disputes. And it would cost thousands of dollars to bribe Afghan government officials and these things would go nowhere. 
And the Taliban, whether these issues got resolved to your favor or not, I think the Afghans just wanted to get resolution so they could either get their land back or move on in the case of those who lose. And, you know, that was all done through the Taliban Sharia courts. It was um, very wise of them. And, and they're still using these courts to this day. It, it grants them a degree of legitimacy that the Afghan government never could have because of corrupt elements um, within the Afghan judiciary, within the Afghan government. Mm -hmm. So it's, how do you think they're going to gain the support of, of the local people of Afghanistan? Do you think that's in their game plan or do they even care? They don't care. Uh, you know, they, we're watching what we watched with the Taliban takeover from 1996 to 2001. The Taliban, you know, it's like communist Russia, or communist China. Rule by the gun works. If they have a significant portion of the per, per, uh, percentage of the population, what's that number? Is it 5%? Is it 10%? I would argue the Taliban probably have like, I can't tell you what that number is, but I'm guessing it's in 20, 30 percent. That's more than enough for the Taliban to rule Afghanistan effectively, rule, rule by the gun in a country that's been at war continuously for 40 years. The Afghan people are exhausted. Um, you know, I always argued that the one of our failures in Afghanistan wasn't that Afghan civilians were killed during night raids or operations. It's that we kept, they kept getting killed and nothing changed. It was that we would come, come in and, you know, drive the Taliban out of a town. Some civilians were killed and buildings were destroyed. Again, it's a country that's been at war. They're kind of used to this, but when that keeps happening and you don't have any success, the Taliban just walk back in a couple of weeks people become indifferent. They sit on the fence or they, they might jump onto the other side of the Taliban fence. Right now, the, 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 the Taliban have given the Afghans a degree of peace. It's the peace of the Taliban, but at least it's what they could understand. So I, I, I expect they're going to get, you know, this between whatever percentage of support that they have and then the indifference to their rule. And again, how do we measure these things? We can't just go in Afghanistan and get and conduct a poll. But they've been in power for it's coming up on two years at the end of August. So it's almost, you know, we're what, one year, nine months. And there's been no real challenge to their rule. And they're um, I, I see no real challenge to them on the horizon. What do you say to all the people, you know, it constantly pops up in the news, there's infighting in the Taliban. Oh, look, there's a possibility to drive them <laughs> apart and maybe everything is going to change and it never changes. I have a lot you... of feelings about that, but I'm wondering, <laughs> what are your feelings about that? I'm sure you could see by my face, you, you, that, <laughs> you, pushed, you pushed my laugh button on that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've been reading articles about the tired Taliban infighting within the Taliban. The 20 different Taliban. Remember when the Taliban took over? They'll never hold on control. They'll immediately go to infighting. It's not what I observed. Um, I view the differences within the Taliban like differences within political parties here in the United States, the Democrat or Republican. Yeah, there's personality differences. There's different, but at the end of the day, a Democrat's a Democrat or Republican's a Republican and they're going to pull the lever, you know, for for their ticket. Um, and that's how it is within the Taliban. I mean, should we not expect brutal 
Taliban into basically land pirates to have not have some violent disputes at some point in time. By the way, we've seen very little of that. Um, I, you know, there was one, but um, with a, I believe he was a Hazara Taliban commander. So right there, he's a marginalized guy. The Taliban wound up killing him, but this was really over a dispute over who gets the, the skim of the resources of a northern province in Afghanistan. It wasn't an ideological difference. That's the only one that I could point to. You know, you know, and people, you know, talk about that. This was, I think that happened almost six, eight months ago, how that was the beginning of the big rift. And, you know, the reality is the Taliban fought hard and sacrificed a lot to gain control of Afghanistan. The the big boys in the Taliban, those who wield power, Mullah Yaqub, who was Mullah Omar's son, he's their defense minister and deputy emir, or Sirajuddin Haqqani, He's there also a deputy emir and interior minister um, and other, you know, we could go on and on with the names of individuals. They saw what happened when the Taliban played weekend at Bernie's with Mullah Omar's corpse from 2013 to 2015. They propped him up and issued statements under his name when he was dead. And they saw the divisions that that happened, how the Taliban almost came apart. And how Sirajuddin Haqqani and his father Jalaluddin Haqqani had to put the Taliban back together. He had to bring the, put the band back together. And he did it by convincing Yakub and Mullah Zakir and others to, to remain in the Taliban fold. They, they were on the precipice at that point in time. You had that event plus the rise of the Islamic State. And they, it could have all fallen apart. I think they learned a lesson from that. And that was really just a division over you know, being lied to by an element of the Taliban's leadership. And, you know, I think the, the adults are in charge now and they, they, they've won. And I don't think they're, they're dumb enough to sacrifice it over petty, petty squabbles. Yeah. There's disagreements and personality disputes, but these are minor in the big picture of the, you know, at the end of the day, like, what are we told? Oh, there's a lot of lead Taliban leaders that disagree with the, the Taliban emir's decision to, you know, take away girls' schools and keep women out of the workforce. Well, they all are executing it. They're all executing his policy. I would guess the big dogs at the table, the the Yakubs and Sirajin Hakanis and individuals like that, they're probably in, in agreement with it. They might not like how it was implemented or how they were kept out of the decision-making process, if that's even true. But at the end of the day, those who matter support um, the decisions being made. And I see very little. This is something, by the way, that I see hyped up by groups, Taliban or anti-Taliban resistant groups or, or um, members of the Afghan diaspora now. I see them hyping claims like that. They're looking for, for seams. They're looking for signs of hope. They're looking to divide the Taliban by floating these rumors. I'll, I'll mention one more quick rumor. I realize I'm, I'm uh, bloviating here, but uh, you know, right after the Taliban took over, there was a rumor that Mullah Baradar, who everyone said was a moderate Taliban, he's currently their deputy um, prime minister, and Sirajun Haqqani, you know, came to blows. And there was even rumors that Baradar was killed. Now, anyone who knows Sirajun Haqqani, anything about him knows that his goons, who are stone-cold killers, you know, he's the guy who put together the suicide teams and you know, he's he's as nasty as they come. He should be number one on our hit list. And Mullah Barader, who's a diplomat type, isn't going to get 10 feet with him. And if he did, 
every bone in his body would be broken if he was lucky. Um, and guess what? Barada wasn't killed. He showed up in public a couple weeks later. Sergeant showed up in public. I think I saw them at an event together. You get a lot of this type of hyping the divisions. I, I, I you know, I, I've been following this in both Afghanistan and Pakistan. The desire for divisions within these groups. Look, they happen. The split between Al-Qaeda and what became the Islamic State. These things do happen within the jihadist community, but they are nowhere near as prevalent as people make them out to be. Yeah, the TBSL rumor mill is always so interesting to follow. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm wondering, are there points for hope? Because, you know, the Taliban aren't changing. No one seems to be trying, you know, where is their room for maybe Afghans to think that there could be a future for them where they're not, you know, I was just reading a Amnesty International has put out a report of extrajudicial killings and um, just mass, they call it, uh, it's a the war crime of basically collective punishment of civilians in Panjshir. Um, and it's just, it's horrid. I mean, they're beating people so badly that they are dying of blood being circulated throughout their body where it shouldn't be. It's, they're sadistic and terrible. Um, yeah, I see reports of it. Yeah. If that yeah. Afghan's disappearing in Tanger, showing up weeks later, you know, tossed along the side of the road. It's, it's mm -hmm. horrific. It's hard to be hopeful. I don't see it. It's not on the near horizon. The only hope is that there can be some form of resistance. And right now, nobody wants to really support the resistance, certainly not the United States. Even countries that should want to, like India, really don't have the stomach for it. And right now, I think the problem is that what you have is the old leadership um, is dominating the leadership of these resistance groups. And let's face it, they failed. They failed. They had all of the resources of the United States and NATO and, and other countries at their disposal, and they couldn't keep the Afghan government together. Now, you, we can argue, well, some of this was because of the deal, and the, but at the end of the day, we gave them equipment and billions of dollars of money and munitions and built them bases and they couldn't keep it together. So if I'm an outsider, why am I going to look and say, you know what, I want to back a loser. And so, but what we, what really needs to happen with the resistance, um, and that's really the only hope that we could have other than some type of the Taliban falls apart, right? And that's why I think you do see these rumors being cycled around because that gives them hope. But the, the real hope, we did train a lot of Afghans. There's a lot of motivated fighting age males that we've trained. They're, they exist. But the, the resistance that needs to form needs to be organic. It can't be the old warlords, the guys who, who again, failed their people by not uniting and fighting the Taliban when, when the chips were you know all on the table in, in 2021. So... We have to get young blood into the resistance. That's something that's going to be organic. I, you know, I'm going to generalize here, but Afghans, you know, younger Afghans tend to, to, uh, you know, look up to their elders and they're going to defer to them. But their their time has passed. The the elders, the youth needs to take control of this. That's. But we're talking years and years, and in a foreign government 
uh, a significant one needs to back them. Right now, the U.S. the the, the Biden administration policy. They said that a State Department spokesman said last year that um, we do not support armed resistance against the Taliban and recommend that they negotiate, because again, that worked out so well a year you know years prior negotiating with the Taliban. So if the U.S. isn't going to do it, who will? I mean, sure, France or India or. Great Britain, but I think a lot of these, you know, these countries all have their own problems. We're in an economic downturn. Um, the perception is, is that the Afghans themselves lost Afghanistan. Um, they're going to have to fight. They're going to have to do a lot of this on their own. They're going to have to take, show that they can take control of some sliver of territory and hold it and, and give their people hope and, and start, you know, building, need to fight a guerrilla war first. Then they need to start taking over some territory and then they need to get some outside support. They need an outside safe haven. That's a tough one. Who's going to do that? Pakistan? That's the Taliban. Uh, you know, Iran? Absolutely not. Those were the two key supporters of the Taliban. And they don't want a pro-U.S. or anti-Taliban force. The Tal They invested in the Taliban. They're going to they're cashing in on their investment. The U.S. is out. That's what they wanted. China, again, they, they wanted the U.S. out. Um, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, but if I'm one of those countries, I'm talking about all the countries on the border, Turkmenistan, mm -hmm. I watched the U.S. get in bed in Afghanistan for 20 years and then leave it high and dry. I'm not sure I want to put my eggs in that basket if I'm Tajikistan or Uzbekistan or Turkmenistan, but who knows? Maybe things will change. I mean, another possibility, and again, this isn't, uh, um, this isn't very hopeful, but maybe the Taliban slips up and, and, a, and a major terrorist attack emanates from Afghan soil and we're able to prove it. And it forces the uh, an international coalition to go back into Afghanistan. I mean, that's a pot. But, you know, we're talking complete failure in that case. You know, it, you have to go full pessimist to become an optimist. And that's the state. That's what we left behind in Afghanistan. The real our real failure. Look, I understood the arguments for withdrawal. The American public, once presidents decide that they don't want to be in Afghanistan, Obama decided it, Trump decided it, and then Biden ultimately executed on it because he didn't want to be there. Once that decision was made, we just wanted to leave, but we never considered. And the only options were given was for for that that was discussed because Washington Washington is binary when it comes to policy. We leave. Or we just keep doing what we're doing and, and, and fail. And I was trying to argue on deaf ears. There was a third way here. We conducted drawdown and it could have been done. Pick your timeline a year, year and a half. We tell the Afghan government we're leaving. We show them they're leaving and we help them organize basically Northern Alliance 2.0. We help clear the Taliban out of the north and, and central Afghanistan. We create a haven for the Afghan government and military. We leave them behind some type of logistical support for their maintenance support for their equipment. We guarantee them money and, and you know, and, and maybe keep a small force in order to help them. I don't know, it's all debatable, right? But we didn't do that. And the result, and we were told by our political and military leadership, oh, the Taliban, you know, years out before they do it. And I'm sitting there, I, I actually made the prediction it, I did it on television in, I want to say it was April or May. I said, well, the Afghan government will be really lucky if it makes it out by the end of the summer. I was actually a little wrong because it, they were gone by five weeks before the end of summer. So, you know, 
if I could have done that, how does a multi-billion dollar defense and intelligence? Because the reality is, is people knew. People on the inside that I spoke to knew what was happening. But our political leadership decided it wanted to go. And, and what we did was we left behind nothing in order to give the Afghans a fighting chance. That was the best chance for hope for the Afghan people to give them Northern Alliance 2.0 to help them secure the center in the north and and and, and um, the, the northwest. There were, there were areas there that could have been done, but instead we just um, gave the Taliban every all the ammunition they needed to get a hundred percent victory, and that's what they got. It's worse today than pre 9/11 in Afghanistan. Pre 9/11, you had a Northern Alliance. You had you know the Taliban were in constant war with the Northern Alliance. They only controlled eighty to eighty five percent of the country. At times, you know, now they control the whole thing. They they're running an economy. They're they they have weapons and munitions that we left behind and bases yeah. and they're and organized. Oh, biometric bombs. tools to identify yeah. their enemies even more effectively. Right, right. Um, yeah, their enemies were out in the open and known individuals. And like you said, you're right. They have ways of tracking. You think we destroyed or the Afghan government destroyed its piles on its way out the door? That collapse was at the end was so quick. Um, I was warning Afghan that I knew, like advisors to the interior and defense ministry and diplomats and telling them, you guys have to get it together. You have to pick, find your own way, find your own allies. The U.S. is leading and to a man, they assured me. And by the way, this was in a recent bit of reporting. I think the United, uh, the UN or recent UN report talked about this. No, it was a SIGAR report, the Special Investigator General for Afghan Reconstruction. I read it and said, yeah, I know this because I, 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 I experienced this. And to a man, they said, no, the, we were being assured by U.S. official, you know, defense, CIA, state, government, you know, congressmen, the U.S. won't really leave. So they never really prepared. We never prepared them for departure. That's the Afghans' fault, but it's also our fault as well. I think one of my favorite anecdotes to that point is uh, from Scott Mann's Pine Operation Pineapple Express book. They talk about how the State Department was planning a paint and sip for like the day that the Taliban took over Kabul, and they canceled it at the, like the last minute. You know, it's like, guys, really, right. really? Yeah, I want to say a week before. The, the fall, Ghani, President, former President Ghani was doing some some computer lab or something in Nangahar or something. And I'm watching this going, man, you, you, you need to be rallying the troops right now, you know? And it was crazy. I, I, I did a little bit of work with those, with, with man's group. And I mean, amidst the covering, the collapse and the, um, you know, being in the press and talking to reporters, um, working to get Americans and, and Afghan individuals, you know, it was just the most crazy, depressing, and yet enlightening experience and, and, and uh, enlightening is not the right word. Uh, it was, it was uplifting at the same and depressing at the same time, because I watched Americans, some who were still working for the government in various capacities, just throw caution to the wind to get people out. And it, um, it still touches me to this day. I, um, yeah, I got some stories about that, that I could tell someday. It's, uh, it was, I, I don't think, I, I hope to never experience something like that again. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just apps. I'll, I'll just a quick, you know, 
I was contacted by an organization to tell me, a, a three-letter agency to tell me to keep an eye open if there's any Americans that are going to try to get out of Afghanistan. This was about two weeks, two, three weeks, maybe, maybe about a month before the collapse. And they um, just said, and I'm getting them on the phone. I'm like, why are they talking to me? What, what, like, I'm not here in the United States. I'm not in that. I'm like, all right, you know. And then the next thing you know, I get a, you know, on the day of the collapse on August 15th, I get a call from a former congressman saying, Bill, I got a family of five that's trying to get out of Afghanistan. And um, I'm like, it's a, a husband, wife, they were visiting people. I, I don't ask me why. Like, I'm like, did you guys watch the news? But anyway, they were visiting family. I had a, a, a son and two daughters. And it looked like my family literally 10 years ago, right? When, you know, 10, eight and six, same age, same same, um, you know, son and then two younger daughters, right? I had their passports in my inbox. And that's when, you know, this group of us, like I'm calling these guys going, hey, we need to help them. And they tried to make it to the airport, I think four or five times before we got them out. We're trying to get in touch with people. It was absolutely insane. Um, I think I got like an hour's sleep, like a night for like a month, maybe two hours. I would like pass out somewhere while waiting to get on the next radio or talk to the next reporter or do something. It was, but you know, to, to watch my countrymen who care about others was, you know, it was only, probably the only thing that got me through that, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah. I mean, our Sorry, I didn't mean to go on that tangent. No, but, you know, I'm a, glad you did. It's a great point. And, you know, I'll just add that our government put a big burden on the shoulders of our veterans and our veterans stepped up and got it done. I was never more ashamed of my government. I, I thought it was when President Biden, you know, told, said that the Afghans wouldn't fight. 50,000 Afghans died fighting against the Taliban over the last 20 years. I mean, and then that happened. And, and I watched how, how the government didn't want to help Americans or was, had to be forced and shamed to do it. Um, it was, it was again, something I hope to never experience again. Um, but my brothers and sisters and from pineapple express and other, then again, you know, within the government, it was, it was something to behold. Yeah. So as we come up on our own. Sorry, Beth, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Michael, okay. you got it. Uh, I was going to change a little bit. So as we come up on our own presidential election here, um, you know, when Afghanistan comes up in the debates, Bill, what are, you, what are you hoping to hear from the candidates? What I hope to hear, I, I would love to see both candidates recognize that mistakes were made on both sides, because this was a bar, Afghanistan was a bipartisan failure. I can walk all the way back to the Bush years of how we formed the Afghan government and how we didn't commit enough forces into Afghanistan in the beginning. And, you know, 70 percent, uh, I think it's around 60 to 70 percent of the current Taliban leadership is the old Taliban leadership. You can't tell me that we defeated the Taliban when, meet, you know, again, that's why I say meet the, the new Taliban, same as the old Taliban. The reality is, is that the old guys just died. Sirajun Haqqani, who I keep mentioning. He's only, his father died and he died of old age. I mean, you know, so the son took over. That's, that's where, same thing with Mullah Yacoub, right? His father was Mullah Omar. That's how this all worked. There's very little new blood in the, and so we didn't defeat them, but we were constantly told that we defeated them. I would like to see Republicans admit 
that the deal was bad and it, it, it set the conditions for defeat and Democrats to admit that the withdrawal was wrong. And, you know, that the reason that this matters is not to score political points. I'm afraid we're going to repeat the mistakes of Afghanistan just as we repeated the mistakes of Vietnam. I, you know, at the beginning of the conflict, people kept saying Vietnam, Afghanistan, Vietnam, and it was the easy thing to say. They said it with Iraq, but they ultimately turned out to be right because we lost our focus. We lost our sense of mission and purpose, and it got Americans killed and maimed, and it helped destroy a country, and all in order to put the Taliban back in power in better condition they were today. Now, sure, than they were pre-9-11. Sure, we killed bin Laden because of our presence and molten disrupted al-Qaeda, but it's still a strong organization, despite what people say. You know, if we make the same decisions in Afghanistan, or if we use the same processes, if we lie to ourselves about what's happening, what, what if we're doing this in Ukraine? What if we're not assessing the intelligence properly? What if we're putting the policy over the facts? What if we delude ourselves into thinking we're, we're winning when we're losing? What if this escalates to the point that we're in direct conflict with Russia? I'm not saying these things are hap- going to happen or have happened, but when you make blatant mistakes like you made in Afghanistan, and you just wanna put it in the rear view mirror and pretend it's not gonna happen, and you have the same people both Republican and Democrat, as well as within the military and the State Department and within the CIA and within USAID, still in place. Like, what makes me think they're going to be successful elsewhere when they failed so grandly in Afghanistan? That's what keeps me up at night. That's why we need a real reckoning, a a, a real understanding. And, you know, I was never hopeful. I'm not hopeful that Congress will do this. And, you know, the, the... Republican Congress seems to only be interested in pointing the finger at President Biden. And he does, you know, he he made the ultimate decision, the withdrawal. He owns that. But it didn't begin on January 21st, 2021, when he took office. There was nearly two decades of mistakes that led up to what, you know, he inherited problems. He ultimately made a, a decision that led to catastrophic failure and he needs to own that but president trump needs to own own it and president Bi- obama needs to own it and president bush needs to own it and david petraeus needs to own it and and um you know generals miller and and uh you know i could go down the list it's all my college an individual who's still pushing that doha deal to this day like can't admit that he failed and wants us to get in bed with the Taliban again and, and, and rely on Pakistan to be a partner in peace. These are the people who are making decisions or influencing policy. They can't even admit that they failed. And, and that's what really worries me. That's why this is important, ultimately. I agree. And I would just add, you know, the moral injury that's facing all the people we sent to do that fighting yeah. who are watching this and feeling bereft. Uh, yeah, they, they, they are owed the families and those who come home traumatized, PTSD, and witness their brothers and sisters killed over there. They, they owe, they're owed so much more than political squabbles and denial about what happened in Afghanistan. Um, they're not going to get it. 
and it's 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 sad and it's it's wrong and um you know our our leadership has failed us and i'm afraid they'll fail us again and and the consequences could be so so much greater the next time around whether it's ukraine or whether it's china and taiwan or where or possibly iran or wherever it else wherever else the conflict it may may become we're not learning from our mistakes no i think we chose expediency over a, a proper outcome here and it's been devastating for so many humans um we always close our episodes by reading a story from an Afghan so that we are giving the perspectives of the people who are still stuck in the morass that uh, has been created. And so today we have the story of an Afghan man we are calling Rahimullah. And Rahimullah worked alongside U.S. forces for three years and then lost his job abruptly after a routine counterintelligence interview. Rahimullah has been denied a special immigrant visa because of his job job termination, and uh, this is his story in his own words. I worked as an interpreter for U.S. military as an advisor in Kabul, Afghanistan at the new Kabul compound for almost three years. We had three main jobs, train, advise, and assist. We trained the Afghan army, advised the Afghan army, and assisted all Kandaks and divisions. Unfortunately, after three years of service, I was terminated from my job for no reason. I still don't know exactly what they, why they terminated me from my work in 2020. Every six months, I had a CI interview and polygraph test. I successfully passed my interview during these three years of service. I also participated in many military operations and had more than 100 missions with the U.S. Army. But at my three-year interview, my unit made an appointment for me at the CI office for my yellow badge. During my interview, I answered all the CI questions. Then they told me they wanted me to take a polygraph test. I told them, okay, no problem. They made very bad threats against me. They don't even threaten their enemies this badly. On that day, they terminated me from my job. I insisted a lot to know what is the issue. They escorted me to the gate. After I was terminated from my job, my termination had a negative impact on my SIV case. They denied my SIV case twice. They even denied my appeal, even though I had and have full support from all my units that I worked for. I have recommendation letters from all my unit supervisors, and I also have medals and appreciation certificates. I worked for the Security Force Assistance Brigades team or the U.S. Military Advisor. It's not justice that they terminated me from my job. They also kept me from receiving a special immigrant visa, and they destroyed my life completely since the Taliban took over the government. Now I am hidden with my mom and dad. We are in a dire situation with no job and no income. I am trying to keep myself alive, but if the Taliban capture me, they won't care that I am a terminated interpreter. They will torture me and will kill me because of my job. For the Taliban, it doesn't matter if you're terminated or blacklisted. They call us American spies, American dogs, American eye and mouth. There is no forgiveness and sympathy from Taliban for us. Every day they, they identify people who supported the U.S. government mission in Afghanistan. The SIV program is wasting many interpreters' time. I have doubts about the program and its management. Please help me raise my voice. I am not the only interpreter to suffer from termination. There are over 100 who were terminated and are stuck in Afghanistan with a lot of security problems. We're really grateful to Rahimullah for letting us share that story. I'm sure that's a difficult one to uh, bring forward. And for all of our Afghan listeners, we want once again to ask 
uh, please send us your stories, no matter what they are. Um, we want to make sure that in every episode, we're including your voices. Uh, and we want to know whether, you know, your the impact in your life, the greatest one was during the war years, during the Taliban's first regime, during the Taliban's return to power at any any point. We want to hear your stories and we want to share them with our listeners. So all you need to do to share that story is send us a detailed letter about your situation and let us know if you need a pseudonym. The correspondence can go to our show address, which is the Afghanistan Project Podcast at gmail.com. Bill, we can't thank you enough. That was such a thorough uh under I mean we now I feel like I have a better understanding of what's going on inside the Taliban and I don't think I'm giving too much away by saying we're going to have you back in a little bit at the two-year mark to talk about all the work you did in the lead-up to the withdrawal. And then I'd love to hear more, too, about your work during the withdrawal because it sounds really impactful. So thank you for being here. It was really incredible. Beth, Michael, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation, intelligent questions. Happy to join you um, in the future. Let's let's do this again. Thanks again. And thanks for sharing that story. I, I, I've heard these stories and it it really does break my heart. The, the, we failed the Afghan people. We failed those who, who worked with us. And we have to do better than this. I agree. We'll keep sharing those stories as long as we get them. So please, everybody send them in. And thank you to all our listeners for sharing your time with us and supporting the people of Afghanistan. Tasha Kaur, and we hope to see you again soon.